1: Hey, audience and listeners, this is James Kandasamy from Achieve Wealth True Value at Real Estate Investing. Today, I have again Mauricio Raul from Premier Law Group based out of California. Mauricio focuses primarily on syndication, so he's the perfect SEC attorney who we are going to be getting into the details soon about active investors and how they should be you know, doing their syndication. Hey, Mauricio, welcome to the show.
2: No, it's good to be with you.
1: <laughs> so this is the second part. Last week, uh, we did the passive investor side of it. And today I want to go deep into the uh, active investor who are like syndicators or sponsors. And I think you work a lot with syndicators and sponsors. So let's define who are these syndicators and sponsors and how they should be you know, viewed at in terms of the SECI.
2: Yeah. So this, I mean, sponsors are basically the quarterbacks, right? They're putting these deals together. They're the ones that are aggregating capital you know they're pooling all these resources and, and most people do think about capital in terms of cash but it really can be anything you could you can pull credit and relationships and time uh, all these different resources but generally you're you're pooling equity or cash in order to go do a bigger deal that you know that you couldn't otherwise do on your own and, uh, and for putting this deal together as being the quarterback of that uh, of that deal, you you get compensated for that, obviously. Got it. So I know we, I mean, most of our audience are used
1: to, you know, we buying you know, apartments or multifamily or any other commercial real estate. What's the weirdest syndication have you seen? I mean, did anybody buy a plane or did anybody buy a big ship?
2: Did I actually did a pro- somebody did, did uh, we didn't do it, but he, he was in the business of uh, of buying uh, private planes and retrofitting them and, and doing something crazy. I think the craziest, not the craziest, uh, maybe now it's not as bad. You know, I did a cryptocurrency fund uh, huh. once. Uh, this was a couple years ago now where, where somebody wanted to come together and just literally invest in different types of, and kind of do a basket of crisp cryptocurrencies. Uh, that's probably the most out there. I mean, m- my bread and butter, you know, 100%. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that anymore. I got one that wasn't. So 99% of my clients are real estate investors, uh, and then probably 95 of do actual real estate. You know, they sometimes venture into cryptocurrencies or some other financial assets or something. But uh, the, my practice really focuses on real estate. I, I tend to attract the real estate investors because of the, of the environments that I'm in. And, and uh, that's really the focus of my practice is real estate syndication.
1: Got it. Got it. So active investors are the people who are running the show and, you know, they are putting themselves out there. They're raising the money. What are the top three to five things that they should not be doing?
2: well um you know probably there's five things i actually just came out with that that ebook james finally that i finally finished the five things that a syndicator must know to stay out of jail but um you know the 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 first thing i think is is just understanding that they're most likely involved in a sale of a security and they've Mm -hmm. got to comply with securities laws that's something that a lot of people either don't know which makes sense because it's like well i'm just buying property like why why is the SEC even involved? They're like, why do I have to report to them? Or why do I have to be worried about securities laws when I'm just buying real estate? Um, and of course, as you know, the definition of a security is really broad and, and it really involves anytime you're collecting money from passive investors and the returns are being generated by your efforts, that is a security, which is why securities laws come into place. But the most important thing is because even, even if you're experienced, I, I get a lot of times people trying to get around trying to be creative with the securities laws, right? Trying to get around them either by calling something a joint venture or maybe trying to do it as a promissory note as opposed to equity or just trying to do a, a side agreement or just something that really they think they're getting around the securities laws when in fact the, the structure itself doesn't even matter. Like whether you do an LLC, an LP, a TIC, tenants in common, uh, profit sharing agreements, you know, side contracts. At the end of the day, what the SEC is going to look for is, is are you raising capital, where the returns are being generated by your efforts, you're doing the work, you're the active part, and all of your investors are simply passive, that's going to be a security, which is why you have to worry about all the securities loss. I think that's by far the one thing we've got to... I have a question related to that. Uh So
1: I usually have seen people where they say, oh, we have 20 people who are friends. Uh, We want to do a JV, we don't want to do a syndication. So how do you separate a JV versus syndication in terms of- Yeah,
2: great, great question. There's no, I don't think there's any way possible you could do 20 people uh, with a joint venture. The key to a joint venture is that every person involved has to be active. Because that way, the returns aren't generated by this person's efforts or that person's efforts. It's collectively generated by everyone. Think of it as almost like you're starting a new company. Like you're starting a company. You've got four or five people, four or five partners that came together. And everybody's bringing something to the table. Everybody's actively involved in, 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 in growing this business and, and, and getting a profit. Uh, with 20 people, there's just there's going to be one or two people at a minimum that are just not doing anything or certainly not carrying their weight. Uh, typically, we recommend to keep it to Five or less, like if you've got you know one or two partners, three four you know other people, you, you you know if everybody's five or less, we can start having that conversation, and then the key again is that everybody's actively involved and can bring something to the party too I mean a lot of people sometimes a lot of times they're just again they're trying to get around the rules and a lot of times you'll you'll have somebody come in and say yeah they're actively involved they're really contributing, but they have like no experience in real estate, they don 't know the first thing about buying a multifamily or whatever so they're really not able to Prove they brought any value to the deal, at least from the real estate side. So, but the, the key is to make sure everybody's active. That's really the, the, the main difference between a joint, what crosses the line from being a joint venture to a securities is that, that level of activity of all of the partners involved.
1: And how does I mean, right, right nowadays we are seeing syndication where there's like, you know, five guys, six, seven guys, 10 guys. How are they doing that? I mean, uh, I don't think so. Everybody can be active on a, let's say 200 unit. I mean, obviously on even want a, a
2: joint venture. No, yeah. on a syndication, oh, right? Oh, so you know, there's like
1: side? sponsorship side. There's co-sponsors, like you know, ten people on a hundred unit yeah, deal and yeah. a two hundred unit.
2: Yeah, it's a similar analysis. So the the thing with you know, when you have a co, you know, typically a syndication, you, you really don't need you know. A lot of times, it's just one person, you know, and their and their company and their team, and and you know, sometimes you partner with someone, so you get two. And then three is not out of, out of the question, especially if you're in a, in a market that you may, you know, maybe you're, you're, you're investing in Florida and you, you don't have boots on the ground in Florida and you have a partner and so you, you bring in a third partner. But same thing, once you have six or seven or eight, it's not an issue, James, unless, unless those people are raising capital as well. I mean, if they're just part of the, the sponsorship team and they're literally bringing some kind of value, you know, they're adding some kind of value and you want to compensate them as part of the sponsorship group, that's fine. You could, in theory, have 10, 20 of them. The issue comes up, and this is, this is I think, uh, number, number three for me on my ebooks. So a number three oh, okay. biggest mistake is when they're raising capital, if they're not actively participating and have really substantial duties in the, in the deal, similar to the joint venture thing, then they're raising capital and they're going to be considered a broker deal. They're basically raising capital without a license. But how do you split that? I mean, people say, that, yeah, I
1: underwrote the deal. Yeah, I walked the units. Yeah, I'm doing investor relationship.
2: Yeah, so it, you- <laughs> there's no magic. Uh, well, there's there's one thing that's magic. Well, one is this, what we call this transaction-based compensation. So if you're getting compensated in exchange for raising money or based on whether you raise money or not, or based on how much money you raise, that's going to be a clear cut. You know, if that's happening, you're, you're going to be considered a broker. A broker, really, under the broker-dealer rules, and that's going to be you're, you're basically raising capital without a license. That's going to be a problem. Uh-huh. The other ones really is is all what we call facts and circumstances. You really have to analyze the specific things. There's so many factors that you look at, and some things may some might be good facts, it might be bad facts, but you got to look at the totality. But at the end of the day, what you have to show, in addition to showing that you did not receive transaction-based compensation, you have to show number one that you had substantial duties in the syndication right and, the, and that's part of the problem is well, what does that mean but yeah what but does it mean <laughs> the rule says you have to have substantial duties and your primary role or primary roles needs to be those substantial duties so that's easier for me because that to me is 50% plus one so if i spend more most more of my time raising the money and less the time doing the substantial duties then then i'm going to be a, considered a broker if i'm doing most of my time you know more than 50% of my time doing the other the other stuff which we'll talk about in a second then I'm, I'm, I'm moving away from that, that designation as a broker. But it's facts and circumstances because it depends on what percentage ownership do you have, how much time are you really spending, and how much money did you raise. And so, for example, I, like, I always like to give these examples. Let's say that you are spending very little time on the syndication. Uh, you may be working nights and evenings or weekends because you have a full-time job, and so you're helping, but you're not necessarily doing a ton of work. And in exchange for that, you may have 2% of the deal, right? Not a lot. And if you then suddenly bring in one or two investors, a couple of your buddies, or whatever, and you bring them in, I don't think that's going to raise any red flags because you're, the substantial duties were it's really whatever you were doing, and you know you brought in one or two people. But on the other hand, if instead of owning two percent, you still weren't doing that much work, but now you own fifteen percent, and you were bringing in a million dollars, and you weren't doing that much work in terms of substantial duties, and that starts to look a lot more like hey, you you really were you really are getting compensated for the raising the money part, not doing whatever you were doing. Maybe you were on the example I usually give is underwriting. There's a lot of people who do a really good at underwriting and they, there's so many properties that you have to underwrite. Because they'll just spend weekends and evenings underwriting deals. And that's great, but that's not a lot of work. You're not doing the diligence. You're not doing the asset management. You're not flying anywhere. You're not talking to the attorneys. And stuff. So, but that's, that's the big issue that we have is what is, what is really a substantial duties? And I, I think again, the more, the more you can show that you're doing, I mean, substantial is is everything that you do as a syndicator, right? I mean, you're looking for deals, you're doing the whole acquisition piece, right? So you're looking for deals, you're underwriting deals. Then when you get into contract, you're doing you're doing the due diligence, you're flying down to the property. Then obviously you're dealing with your investors, you're definitely raising capital. is obviously part of that, uh, but it's only one of one of many things you need to do. And then once you acquire the property, what do you do then? You have to asset management. You have to actually execute on the business plan. Like, how involved are you in that? That's probably to me even, that to me is a big piece of it. It's like once you close on the deal, once the offering is done, you've raised all the money and you've closed on the property and everybody's high-fiving each other and celebrating. Now the hard work starts. You've got to actually asset manage the deal. How how involved are you in that? Like are you zero involved because now you basically helped raise the money and, and, and you did, and then you, you're, you're going disappear. home? Or are, you, yeah. or are you involved in the asset management, which arguably is... Is is the hardest part. So it all you've got to look at all the facts and circumstances
1: and yeah. so let me give you some sample because this is what I'm seeing in the industry, right? Because then, then be very clear, right? So let's say, you know, a person A went and got a deal under contract. So once after the let's say two person put a deal under contract, now they said, Oh, we can't raise all this ten million dollars. We're gonna raise maybe seven million dollars or maybe five million dollars. We're gonna allocate out of hundred percent of our GP ship, we're gonna give thirty percent to a group of people who's gonna raise the money and of course they're gonna be part of the GP, right? And uh, part of the GP and they are part of, I mean, whatever role, I'm not sure what role they do, but I mean, a lot of people claim they're investor relationship people. I mean, let's say you have uh, 10 people who owning that, you know, 30% of that GP. And this two person who already put it under contract, uh, and now they go and find this 10 people who, who's going to take 30% of the GP. You know, this 30% of the GP people, I mean, of course, they can underwrite. I mean, it's, it's already been underwritten, right? I mean, that's why it's already under contract. There's nothing to underwrite anymore. And they raise all the money. They, they, they have their own investor base. So they, you know, it's claimed like they're investor relationship person. And once deal is closed, I mean, you don't need like 20. I mean, you don't need like 10 people who raise the money plus two asset managers to manage that you know, 200, 300 unit, right? That's that's like 12 people managing assets. So most of the time, this 10 people doesn't, I don't think so they can do anything, because there's nothing to do post-closing, right? So these two people, but they claim, I mean, it is part of the GP. I mean, this is like true story. This is what's happening in the industry. So how how does
2: that work? Is that walking the the gray line? First question they're going to ask is, if that person or the group of individuals didn't raise a single dime, would they still get the 30%? If um, the answer is yes, okay, we can have the next conversation. If the answer is like, no, of course not. If they didn't raise any money, of course we not. let them in the deal. Of course and, not. I mean, everybody knows the reason why these 10 people came on board is to raise money, right? Because this, That's right. And that's this, the problem. And here's the part that I think most people try and get a little bit cute with it <laughs> and they probably don't realize the issue. The emails that go back and forth between the sponsors and the spreadsheets that everybody shares that has the, you know, any conversation... About getting a percentage in exchange for uh, raising the capital. Those internal emails, those are all discoverable, and they all end up in the file of the SEC or whatever regulator if they looked into it. So mm-hmm. you may, you can argue, no, I was going to get paid to 30 percent no matter what. Look, here's the operating agreement. We always, have. but if there's emails going back and forth, it's like, hey, I can come into the deal. I can raise a couple million. You now, how much are you going to, you know, what percentage are you going to give me? Or if there's some negotiation as to, well, the more money you bring in, the bigger the piece of the pie you get. Those are not privileged conversations that are going back and forth. You should assume all of those emails and all those spreadsheets and all of those things are going to end up in the uh, in the hands of an SEC investigator, and mm-hmm. it's going to be really difficult for you to show that you weren't brought in to raise money if, if in fact, that's what you did. And I think mm-hmm. that's the biggest issue. If you're trying to get around the rules where you're, you're really being brought in to raise money, and then you're trying to cover it up a little bit so to speak or you're trying to structure it in such a way to get around that that's where you're going to have the issues if you're legitimately bringing in because you have experience you've been you, you know maybe look maybe you're a first-time syndicator and, and you're a little bit concerned and so i'm going to reach out to james like james please can you be a co-sponsor with me because you know you've been doing this for so many years and you're really experienced and i could really use a mentor and, and in exchange for that you know i'll give you half of the deal or 30 percent of the deal and then you go out and raise the money or raise a lot of the money for you, that's that's going to be okay. The other thing you've got to remember, and again, that's why it's facts and circumstances, I'll give you another example. Is this person raising money for you is a co-sponsor in your deal and then a co-sponsor in another deal and then the, throughout the year, they're a co-sponsor in seven different deals? Or is this person part of your team and you're doing a, the you know, seven deals together, right? You're part of the actual team. If you're part of the actual team, that's going to be a totally set of, different set of circumstances. If you're, if you're really the capital raiser, you might be able to get away with that because this is, a, this is our organization. I'm part of the team and that's, you know I'm the relationship person. I'm really good at that and so that's my role. But when you have, which is what I know we have now, where you have people coming in and they raise a bunch of money for you, James, and they come to Mauricio and raise a bunch of money for Mauricio and they have a bunch of money for this person, that person, that's not a good fact for you because it's going to be harder and harder because it's going to be your burden and yeah. when I see you are really both the syndicator and the, the money raiser of this. Oh, I mean, started. we see that all the time. I mean, people oh, yeah. have
1: has become like money raiser for like 10 different, I mean, yeah. 10 different deals.
2: And, and look, James, as you know, the SEC is starting to crack down on this. Uh, I always mm-hmm. figured that this would become an issue, you know, in the next recession, or, or at least when people started losing money, but it actually started before that. And mm-hmm. so I know the SEC, at least two investigations that are going on um, not saying whether there's anything right or wrong that happened, but they are definitely focusing on this phenomenon because it is a relatively new thing. Five years ago, I didn't see this. Five years ago, you would see one, two, maybe three sponsors. Now you're seeing, like you said, six, nine, 10, 15 sponsors. And it just, it just raises a red flag for a regulator when they say, well, why do you need 15 sponsors to put this deal? First of all, you're splitting money 15 ways. Why do you need 15? What, what did this person really do? Because that's the question you have to answer. What did this person do to earn that 5% GP cut? Your answer cannot be they helped me raise money or at least can't be they mm-hmm. primarily helped me money. What yeah. else did they do? Um,
1: or how they said I'm an investor relation for this investor group. But it's yeah. like 10 people doing all investor relationships. Right. You
2: only need one person. And when you have, inve- here's another set of facts that doesn't work well for you is if you have three investor relations people and each investor relation only talks to their investors. Correct. That's not a good fact. Well, if that's you- what's happening right now. Like 10 people. So if, dip, dip. If, if it's an investor relations and have one investor relation person who then deals with all of the investors, and, and not only puts out all the reports, the quarterly reports, but handles all the distribution. Yeah. And when there are questions and concerns and complaints, that person is handling it. Then that's fine. Also, remember, an investor relations person you can hire for probably I always say sixty thousand dollars a year. It's probably less than that, uh-huh. uh, but let's just say sixty thousand dollars a year is what an investor relations person earns. If you're suddenly getting much more than that because of the you know you know why would you give an investor relations person twenty percent of the deal? when you can go hire somebody for $60,000. So all these facts, again, you've got to take the totality of the facts of the particular circumstance and then figure out, well, we, what are the good facts for you? What are the bad facts for you? And then you just kind of do a balancing act. And, and, and the more bad facts you have, the the worse you are. But the, the number one bad fact for sure, not even a bad fact, is is your killer, is the transaction-based. If you are if you would not have gotten a percentage of the deal if you hadn't raised the money, and typically, let's be honest, typically that, that's somewhere there's an email, uh, maybe there's not a contract. People don't usually do a formal contract like that, but there's usually email community. Not everybody yeah. does it over the phone. There's always well, email. people. People have stopped doing it spreadshe- right now. I've <laughs> seen spreadsheets that have uh-huh. a little cell that's designated for the money, ra- it says money raiser and there's a percentage. I mean, that's, that's gonna be game over when, when they see that. You
1: know? Yeah, I mean, you'll see name cards with equity raiser, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, equity raiser and that person gets 6% and it's like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know
1: yeah i presume nowadays people are no more doing excel spreadsheet because of awareness of what's happening for the past you know 1 to 2 years but i think i think a lot of times you know after going under deal people get to ask them verbally right how much do you think you can raise right so people know if they can raise 2 That's million fine they can raise 1 million, right? And then, hey, let's put the percentage based on that, right? So Yeah,
2: look, if you're a legitimate co-sponsor and you're coming in to add value, whether it's knowledge of the marketplace or maybe, look, I mean, think of it this way, James. I mean, you, I, I think I, maybe I'm pigeonholing you here, so forgive me if I do. But let's just say, look, James is the multifamily king. He, he his mm-hmm. Multifamily is his thing. And now you want to you kind of expand a little bit to maybe, you know, self-storage or something and you've never done a self-storage. Well, then it makes sense to bring somebody in who has experience in self-storage. And then once that's a legitimate co-sponsor, then obviously their investor base opens up and you can access that base. But it has to start with bringing the value to the syndication as a legitimate co-sponsor first. And then you can worry about the money as opposed to what a lot of people are doing, which is bring them in for the money piece and then figuring out what value they can add. They've got it reversed and it's when it's reversed that people get into trouble.
1: Yeah. And you said you have seen cases right now with SECs going after some of the people uh, who's, who has been abusing this system, I guess, right? Or walking yeah. the gray line, I guess.
2: Uh, yeah I mean I, I actually don't know what the specifics are in terms of what they're doing, but I do know that there's a couple of investigations because it's a pretty wide net, and so a lot of uh, people that I know have kind of been caught up in it, even passive investors have been getting you know letters and so I'm aware of it. Um, I'm actually hopeful that that will result in some more clear guidance from the SEC, especially about what this substantive you know what, what is substanti- it's not what some substantial what a substantial duty really mean? does investor relations cut it? Or do they, you know, do they have to be part of the asset management? And if so, how involved do they have to be? Get a little bit of guidance because up until now, all of the guidance um, it has been really focused on the transaction-based compensation side. And that's, I think that's pretty clear. Uh, I think the primary part is pretty clear, but the substantial, you know, it's all facts and circumstances and it's very wishy-washy and it'd be nice to be able to get some clear guidance as to what allowable and what's, what's definitely allowable, what's definitely not allowable. And then we're always going to have that gray area. But right now, it's a little bit gray for everyone.
1: Got it. Got it. What about sub syndication? I mean, that's another new term that I, I found out, you know, a few months back where out of three guys, one guy is the money raiser. And that one guy has an LLC with, you know, 20 other
2: guys. I think that's what it's called a
1: sub syndication. Is that?
2: No, that's the, that's the way, that's really a good way to do it. Sub syndication, some people call it a fund of funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, where instead of me, let's just say, James, you have a deal. So instead of saying, Mauricio, you know, let's say I can go raise a million dollars for you. Well, I can't, right? I can't just come in and raise a million dollars and you pay for me. But what I can do is do my own syndication, mm-hmm. raise the million dollars into my own syndication, do my syndication legally, do you know, 506B, 506C, you know, comply with those, those rules and then turn around and make that million dollar investment into your deal, okay? okay. okay. Now, a couple of things to keep in mind. Number one, you still can't pay me for raising the capital, right? Just because I wrote you a million dollar check that you still can't pay, you can't compensate me for that. The way it really works is because I'm gonna give you a million dollars, typically I'm gonna be able to negotiate better terms for my fund. So maybe instead of taking, let's say it's a 70-30 deal at your level, you're taking 30% of the profits, I can maybe negotiate, maybe only take 20% or maybe only take 15% because I'm coming in with a big number. Maybe uh, instead of you know, a 2% asset management fee, you'll only charge me a 1% asset management fee because you're only dealing with one person, you're not dealing with my 30 investors. So all these little things that you negotiate end up resulting in more cash flow for my fund. And then in my fund, I can take my fees just like anybody, any other syndicator, I can take my acquisition fee, asset management fee, split it 80, 20 with the investors, give them the preferred, whatever you, you want to do. But in order to make it work, you have to have kind of additional cash into your fund. And that's how you typically would do that. An important consideration and where most people miss is when you do a sub syndication or a fund of funds, you are now buying not really shares in somebody else's company because they're usually LLC units, but you're buying a security. You're not buying real estate. You're buying LLC units or LP units in somebody else's deal. And because of that, you become an investment advisor. Uh-huh. At your fund, you're become, you are categorized as an investment advisor. So the question becomes, do you need to register as an investment advisor somewhere? Okay? Typically, that's a state-by-state. If, if you're dealing with less than $100 million, you, it's, you can't even register with the SEC. You would have to register with your state. Every single state, at least so far that I've seen, has some type of exemption to registration. So you don't have to register as an investment. Let's say, let's say for, Texas is a good example because I have so many clients in Texas. In Texas, for example, you, you don't have to register as an investment advisor. There's an exemption to it. However, that exemption has a bunch of limitations, right? And, and the main one is that you could only accept accredited investors into your fund. If it's, if it's accredited only and it's less than a certain amount of, uh, you know, you, you manage a certain amount of funds, then you would be exempt from having to register as an investment advisor in Texas. There's still some forms that you've got to fill out. But there's an example, you've got to just think about, I don't want to get too in the weeds, but just understand that when you're doing a sub syndication, you are an investment advisor and you want to connect with, a, with an advisory attorney to help you navigate whatever registration or exemption rules, that, which are completely separate from the usual 506B, 506C. You've just introduced a whole new element um, into the deal. Got it. Got it. Got it. Let's continue with your number
1: no five, uh, not to do uh, five, things. I so, think you were number, so number, number three.
2: One, let me see if I can <laughs> I mean, remember. It took me so long to write, I've almost forgot it. So, so number one was just not realizing. The, so, so the thing is like, number one is not realizing that you're dealing with a security. So we kind of talked about that. Uh, number two is the, is the advertising, right? That's another big thing. Most people rely on exemptions that prohibit advertising. And yet people are on social media, they're pitching their deals directly or they're, they're what we call conditioning the market. And they're, you know, whether it's social media, whether it's websites, whether it's podcasts, I mean, you cannot, these are called private placements, meaning you you have to have already existing relationships. We call these pre-existing substantive relationships with your investors. You cannot go on Facebook or LinkedIn or, or go on a podcast and start talking about the fact that you have a deal and you're raising money for it. And yet for some reason, people do it. <laughs> mm. uh, people forget uh, that just they think it's maybe informal, it's social media, you know, whatever. Or it's how, pod- how if the deal is already done? You're just announcing your success. That potentially could be what I call conditioning the market. Um, it depends on In that one, well actually there's two scenarios on that. One is really concerning, the other one is up for debate. The concerning one is a lot of people close on a property but don't close on the offering. And they close on the property and they do a post about closing the property, but they continue to raise money post-close. I think that's kind of a clear cut, you know, at that point you're advertising your deal and you're still raising money for it. So that's a dangerous game. Uh Um, The other one, if you've finished your raise, it depends on really what your next raise looks like. If your next raise is 506C, then there's no problem. If your next raise is a week from now or already going, that's probably going to be conditioning the market. You know, if you do a rate, a lot of people raise money and then they don't raise money ever again, or they, or they may not raise money for another year or two. So the the longer the distance between that post and your next offering, the less likely it's going to be condition, considered conditioning the market. Uh, a lot, as you know, a lot of syndicators is great. They, they, they have deal after deal after deal. And if your next deal is already in the works, and you know you make that post and then two weeks later, you're announcing or, or you've, you've launched your new offering, that, that could be problematic. Anything that drums up excitement, uh, you know, gets people excited about your deal, even if you don't talk about it directly, could be condi- conditioning the market, which is why it's one of the reasons I recommend if you have an active deal, I would recommend staying off of social media, at least regarding real estate. I mean, you can always post about your kids yeah. and your bunnies yeah. and your cats, but, <laughs> but stay off of social media. I think you're just playing with fire, but when you're in between deals, Or if you've never done a deal before, before your first deal, then absolutely use social media to to get into relationships. Uh, One of the things I talk about in the ebook, which I think is chapter four, the fourth thing is getting into that substantive relationship with your investor. And that's done in between deals. You know, get into relationships on Facebook, take them off of Facebook, start a conversation, you know, either in person or on the phone send them these questionnaires, start getting to know them, start fostering that relationship so that you can establish a substantive relationship. So then you can offer them a future deal. But once you have an active deal, first of all, anybody you meet at that point is not going to be eligible anyway. And you, you run the risk of, of the SEC considering you uh, conditioning the market. So
1: let's, let me give an example. So let's say I'm doing a two deals at the same time, one is 506B and one is 506C. I mean, and I'm sure you're going to ask me, why am I doing that? Right? Why not do all both 506C, right? So let's say, hey, I want to give some opportunity to my sophisticated investors on one deal, which is a probably a smaller deal. Right. And the other one I want to expand my network on for using 506C, right? Is it possible to do that? Uh, is there any
2: gray line in doing that? What to watch out, what not to watch out? You've got to be careful. I mean, it is. It, technically it's possible to do what we call concurrent raises. So we, it is possible to do a 506B and a 506C. Mm-hmm at the same time, it's just difficult because sometimes the, uh, the IRS, the, uh, the SEC, <laughs> well, what's called integrate. It integrate? This is not next yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. They'll integrate it. So if they're, it depends on how similar they are. I mean, if you have two almost identical deals, uh, yeah. the SEC may integrate those and consider them one, which is going to be a problem. It. But if you're 506C, you're only making posts specifically to that 506C deal. And certainly if they call you for the 506C deal, you can't then just put them into your 506B right? That would, be, that would be acquiring them through advertising. You don't have a, a, a substantive relationship with that person. You, they would not be eligible for your 506B anyway. But could you do a 506C, capture a bunch of non-accredited investors that are not eligible for them, and then you put them through a process to get to know them over the next few months or whatever and establish a substantive relationship? Then you could offer them a future 506B deal? Yes but you wouldn't be able to offer them the current 506B deal. The only way I know of really to do the concurrent ones is if your 506B only has accredited investors, which at that point, you know, why, why do a 506B? But you could, in theory, have 506C posted all over Facebook and do whatever. And then with the 506B, you're just making personal phone calls, right? You're, you're picking up the phone and you're calling your contacts that you already have a pre-existing relationship with. Um, and having it and having them come in but if if suddenly somebody shows is you know because here's what happens James when deals go south investors are not on your side they're gonna lie they're gonna they're gonna say how did you meet James James says he knew you and like I've never met James in my life uh-huh. I saw a post on social media they're not going to be on your side yeah so got it, got it. Um, you, you're just running the risk of somebody just saying hey i I don't know James from from anywhere and, and you know I found him through through this 506C deal or some kind of advertising, which is why you want to be careful with.
1: Yeah, and some—I mean, the reason why sometimes people do that, where you know they do a 506B just accredited and not through a 506C accredited right just because some, sure. some people don't like to do, go through the process of accreditation right so just
2: make sure you get that line like i guess proverbial. I want to be, it's the proverbial chinese wall you want to have that wall that separates the two offerings so there's no chance that they're mixing and matching so so your 506c posts first of all they really should drive them away from you know there's not enough room in facebook to give all your disclaimers and everything so usually mm-hmm. a usually a, a 506c is effective when you do some kind of a webinar, when you're, so you're advertising a webinar that then talks about your deal, or you're advertising your website that has more information about your deal. And then just make sure you're only talking about that 506C deal. You obviously would never be able to reference the 506B deal. What about, is that possible to do a 506B?
1: And then you say, it's 506B, but I'm only opening up to accredited investor and let's say halfway through, you know, for some reason you said, okay, I need, I want to expand more to a 506B. I want to do more advertising on this deal because I need a lot more people from my network. Are you able to convert from 506B? I mean, of course you haven't filed with the SEC yet, right? So if you file already, then you can't change, I guess. You know, When you're doing 506B, you said it's just accredited only friends and families and halfway through you said, I want to change it to a 506 c Are you able to do that?
2: Well, it- in a 506 c you cannot accept non-accredited. So if you already have non-accredited in your deal, then you wouldn't be able to do that. Yeah, you have to basically kick them out.
1: No, it's 506B, but only accredited. I mean, you are just manually telling right. them that it was yeah. only for so accredited you
2: probably end up doing, There's probably a way to do it because the one thing you haven't done with the 506B investors that have already come in is you haven't taken reasonable steps to verify that they're accredited. Mm -hmm. So typically what we would do is do some kind of an unwinding process where you kind of say, well, like I'm kind of stopping the 506, that's probably the best way to do it. I'm stopping the 506B. I'm kind of not really returning your money, but you can give them rescission rights, which means, hey, I'm changing my thing from a 506B to a 506C. I don't think it's a big deal, but I'm on, I'm letting you know this. And if you want to get out, I'm happy to return your money. If not, here are the new docs for the 506C deal. I also have to I have to um, I have to take reasonable steps to verify. So please provide us with whatever verification documents we need to to now verify that you're that you're accredited, and then then you can move on to your 506C. Okay. Uh, the other way around is not possible. Once you do a 506, well, I guess technically it's possible, but 506C the minute you advertise or solicit, then by definition, you've blown your 506B exemption, so you wouldn't be able to go from a C to a B. But it is possible with some adjustments, I think, to go from a B to a C, especially if you kind of unwind the B and then do the rescission and then start kind of fresh.
1: Yeah, yeah, correct.
2: So I think we are, we I used to it still was
1: the number four, number five, or maybe number five. I think you already gone uh, to the number four. Uh, so
2: number one was just not knowing uh, that you're selling securities. Number two was the advertising. Number three was the paying the money raisers. Uh, number four was just understanding what the pre-existing substantive relationship is. So I kind of go through what that entails. Uh, I finally also got to finish my questionnaire. So one of the things you want to do is before you even start communicating with complete strangers is, is give them a questionnaire that kind of gets all the important information that you need from them, their financial background, their experience level, what their goals are. And so I've got that in, in there as well that you can look at. And then the last one I kind of threw out, I might do a separate, right now I talk a little bit about promissory notes in the first one. I might blow that up into a, its own chapter and maybe do a second edition. Okay. But uh, the fifth one just is just what drives me crazy. That's why I put it in there is don't use templates. Each deal is unique. Uh-huh. Uh, I've had I've had I talked to people on the phone who have used my template because I give away templates a lot of times on the on the uh, you know, at events that I do or or, or maybe at a, on my website at some point they'll take my template and then just turn it into their own and they'll go raise a bunch of money with my template <laughs> and my point is that the PPM it's you can get a template off the off the web of the internet right I mean you can get a PPM anywhere but the PPM is kind of worthless what what's important about the PPM is understanding what information to pull out of the deal and put it into the PPM, right? Because you've got, you've got to give all the material disclosures. And the main job of your attorney, as your security attorney, is to understand your deal, specific deal, understand the risks involved in your deal, the risks involved with your structure, the risks involved with the team, because you know maybe there, somebody on your team has filed for bankruptcy or something, all that stuff, and making sure that all that information is then included in the PPM uh, and also making sure that you're not violating the rules by being a broker-dealer or not registering as an investment advisor or all these other you know, landlines that you can fall under. So that was kind of my last little thing about just, just don't use those templates because I have seen people like they just take a template and they change the name somehow and they think they're complying with, with securities laws. And, and remember the job, your goal is not to get a PPM out. Your goal is to raise the money in full compliance with federal and state securities laws. Uh, and that's what your securities attorney is there to help you with. Got it. Got it. So before I let you go, I think you mentioned something.
1: So if someone had a bankruptcy, they have to declare it in the PPM. I mean, it's, it's nothing for me, but, but I
2: just, just a question. Just a question. <laughs> yeah, no, in the PPM, yeah, the PPM, we have to include all of the material facts, you know, and a material fact is something that an investor may consider relevant in making a decision whether to invest in your deal or not. And so if you have been involved in, certainly if you've been involved in some securities violation, you're probably going to be barred actually from doing it. But if you have a financial issue, like if you file for bankruptcy in the last couple of years, then there's definitely an argument to be made that the investor, if they knew that you had filed for bankruptcy, which which affects your financing, it kind of reflects your ability to, to deal with your finances. That is going to be argued as something that was relevant, and the and the concern you're going to have is if you don't disclose that and your deal goes south, I guarantee you the the plaintiffs' lawyers, the lawyers of the people who lost money, are going to argue that hey, had you disclosed to me that you would file for bankruptcy, I would never have invested in your deal to begin with. And where it gets tricky a little bit, and I don't I don't have an answer here is just how far yeah. back, right? I mean, yeah, you know, how far back? You, yeah, you had a bankruptcy, you know, when you were 18 years old, and now you're 60. 40 years ago is that material you know you can maybe argue yes or no, no. like
1: 2008 right there's so many people caught into you know real estate crash and they went into bankruptcy sure, but
2: that, i think that's also material i mean if you if you were, were caught in the 2008 crash and you lost a bunch of your investors money that's probably something you should be disclosing now look you can give an explanation and say look we lost all this money but that you know, because hey this this huge great financial crisis happened a lot of people but again the concern is that if you don't disclose it, you're providing ammunition to the plaintiff's lawyers to argue that had you disclosed that, there's no way my client would have invested in your deal. And therefore, your failure to disclose that is what really, if you had disclosed that, I wouldn't; my client would not have lost any money because I wouldn't have invested with you in the first place. Got it. Got it. That's very interesting because I know that
1: happens right people did oh, yeah, get yeah. crashed that's and
2: the tricky one to me the tricky part is after you know 10 years right so usually after 10 years i think after 7 or 10 years it comes off your credit report mm-hmm. and so that that's you start arguing there and like if it was 11 years ago is that material but honestly the, the joke with lawyers is if you if you have to ask then it's probably material <laughs> <laughs> is that already yeah. okay. so okay. um, but but, but all right. yeah all right
1: all right marisha why not you tell our audience how to get hold of you
2: um, you know what, if you want to, if you want to copy of that report, you can, if you just want to email jail at premier because that's what it's all it's five a, things. Every, a bad name. every syndicator <laughs> must notice they had a jail jail at premier That will get you not only the report, but also, uh, you can always just drop me a, a message with that as well. And I'll get that message.
1: Jail at, uh, right? You said yep, okay.
2: jail at premier
1: Okay. It's awesome. All right, thank you, Mauricio. I'm sure you had a lot of uh, value, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are thinking a lot, right? So, because they have probably would have seen a lot of things that we have talked about. Thank you very much for coming. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. It was fun.
0: That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free along with other valuable resources by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for multifamily investors group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.